This is the Gartner Steering Engineering Podcast. Welcome to Steering Engineering, Gartner's podcast for software engineering leaders like you. Building on Gartner's deep expertise in the design and development of digital products, we dive deep into the topics that matter most to software engineers and the leadership that guides them. I'm your host, Brent Stewart, and I'm joined by my co-host and cigar aficionado, Danny Bryant. (laughs) What do we have on tap today, Danny? We're here actually to talk about one of my favorite topics, Brent, besides cigars, that is, (laughs) which is low-code application platforms, or LCAPs. And joining us today is Oleksandr Matvitsky. Did I get that all right, Oleks? Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. He's a senior director analyst here at Gartner, uh, and he's also the lead author for this year's Magic Quadrant for enterprise low-code application platforms. So today we're going to take a bit of a walk through that magic quadrant. We're going to talk about the state of low code. Right on. So before we get into it, Danny, when was the first time you ever heard about low code? And what did you think at the time? Oh boy, like you and many of us, I've been through generations of high productivity platforms. I was a flash flex guy for many years. and I didn't know that. Nice. Yeah, but I'm late to this party, I have to admit, and i I might be the resident pro code developer, Um, but it really is one of my favorite topics. I've kind of come around to this in recent years. I've started complementing a lot of my own development with low code tools, especially back end low code tools, because I actually enjoy the front end and the back end is like, I left that behind a long time ago, but, but enough of my stories, yeah, Olex is the expert here. And uh, and welcome, Olex. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I was I was looking forward to this, and uh, just like yourself, uh, I represent traditional coding uh, community. And uh, until I started looking into low code coverage at Gartner, I didn't have practical experience with it. But when I saw what it can do, and uh, got immersive experience with it, it's, it, it, it really comes across as, as a future of the development. Yeah, yeah I, I think low code clicked for me when I finally understood the power of visual programming in general, like, or, or and if, even not visual, but, but other tools that basically shortcut that. And as a developer, the reason I'm so interested is because of the structure and the platform and the power I'm given so much of those infrastructural concerns go away and you're able to focus on on the actual use case or the actual functionality for once and that's that's kind of when it uh, struck a nerve for me in a positive way so guys there's no doubt that that the document type gardener is most well known for is the magic quadrant. Our MQs are by far some of the most widely read and and most influential research we publish. And this MQ in particular for low-code application platforms is currently number one. Why do you think it's so popular, Olex? It was waiting for its time. So as we all agreed here that low-code is not new, visual and model-driven development is not new, we can count decades, really, uh, but it took time for for the industry for for the users to uh, understand the 
the abstraction and also mainly it took time for the vendors to provide feature-rich implementation to cover the full stack, not just UI, as you mentioned, or some data-centric applications, but actually have support for tools and components and libraries um, for, for the full stack application delivery. Why did it take so long? I mean, I'm curious about your guys' thoughts because it, it's been a long time and it feels like in recent years, we've just like turned a corner and suddenly everyone's assuming that it's going to be some part of their development and application strategy. Do I read that correctly? Yeah, it already became. Everybody has one or two. Um, they may not be actively using it for mission-critical application delivery, but it is either sitting there waiting for its time still or already being used for some um, corner use cases and citizen development and uh, maybe some automation that developers are working on and they don't even identify it as a low-code, no-code. They just get the tool that getting work done. Um, so yeah, it, it took a while uh, because of the evolution of the software engineering itself um, is not happening in one day. We went through cloud transformation. We went through composable architecture views. We went through different catalogs of the shared APIs and all different um, evolution steps. Getting, we're getting us closer to this type of a platform uh, taking the dominance. I have to add to that. I think the developer understanding has also contributed to that because I, I do have conversations with clients who will say, you know what, our citizen developer program, it's a catastrophe. <laughs> like we, like we have no idea how to manage it properly, but our developers have started taking the reins of many of these platforms and realized that, you know, there's good low code development and there's bad low code development. And the more technical folks can help a lot to steer the good low code development. I've heard some success stories when it comes to citizen developers as well. You know, I, I do believe there's some democratization happening here, and that's probably feeding into the popularity of this particular MQ, right? If, if we have a broader audience here and more people that can engage with this type of platform and actually create something you know, with little and sometimes no input from a trained software engineer. I just say that a lot of conversation happen with um, IT leaders, not business leaders who look uh, at the use of citizen development um, capacity, IT leaders who want to provide their uh, business departments with some application delivery because they have Excel spreadsheets sitting all over the folders and nobody knows what's going on. And this is an opportunity to make things at least transparent, at least manageable. And then you can take it to the next level if you want to. Well, and as you said, the vendors have also improved these products significantly. Um, I've seen each generation get the workflows a little bit better, get the user interface better, offer more integrations. So let's talk a bit about the vendors specifically. Who is leading Olex? Which vendors have moved the most on the MQ this year? The set of leaders remained not unchanged for three years since this MQ works under this uh, name. Uh, but this year we have smaller vendor entering the leader quadrant uh, called Appian. And they made the change uh, from the visionary quadrant because they really targeted the market uh, aggressively, I would say, and in multiple 
front and delivered on on the promises they made so they are still the smallest vendor we have microsoft we have service now we have salesforce we have mendix and outsystem so the leaders are the companies that make significant amount of money solve significant number of problems for the clients and uh, to be a leader on the magic quadrant uh, you have to demonstrate very strong business metrics as a company so it's not just the component or service that you provide is in awesome quality and much demanded. It has to be successful business. That's a really important point, though, that, that I don't know that all of our clients or even those who, who read and pay attention to Magic Quadrants realize. It's not something I understood you know, initially. They, I thought they were primarily product evaluations, right? It's like you know the consumer reports of big IT giving us these opinions, but but it's a lot more than that, right? Absolutely, yeah. Clients often ask, "I have this great platform. I'm using it successfully. Why it's not in the magic quadrant?" And they expect that it will be reflected because it's an awesome product. It's a great quality and reliability, and solve their use cases, but. We are looking at the magic quadrant as a measure of success of the business and the vision and execution of the business metrics. And only one component out of 15 is the product itself, which is properly reviewed in the critical capabilities. And then it contributes back to magic quadrant, of course. What are some of those other criteria if, if the product's only one of 15? This is a market understanding. So we see what clients need. We talk to a lot of clients about their um, gaps in their technology implementation. So we want to assess the vendor and uh, look at uh, their understanding of the market. Is it the same? Is it what customers need? That is one important topic. Another important topic is the sales and pricing. So are they um, affordable? Are they offering flexibility? Are they present in different regions? Are they global vendor or local customer uh, success uh, focus? So if they run events, if they run training and uh, operational excellence as well. So do they turn off the computers to upgrade their systems or can they be continuously up and running? It's basically a long list of all the things I wish I'd known when I was doing this startup. Yeah. <laughs> when I thought, if I build it, they will come, right? Just get a product ignoring every other aspect of a successful solution space. Yeah. And I got to say, Olex, from a selfish perspective, as a, an analyst that covers UX design, I got to say, I would love to have the resulting UX, the experiences created by these, these LCAP products be a part of uh, evaluation criteria is that have you seen anything on the on the design front from from these products that you think is is notable? Of course, yeah. Big part of low code space is what we also call MXDP, multi-experience development platforms. And now there is a merging between these two markets and we actually in invited two more vendors from MXDP market guide to participate in the local magic quadrant this year. And the lines are blurred and the introduction of design systems uh, that are internal to local platform integration with design tooling like Figma, it became a critical capability. It's a standard that we always check when we review different vendors and different platforms. Good to hear. Another topic that we got to bring up, and I feel like it comes up in every single discussion that we have these days, but but we got to go there is generative AI. And, and when you think about low-code application platforms, you could 
end up thinking, well, this is kind of a threat maybe to, to low code. Is, is, is that the way you see it, Olex? Or is this something that will sort of supercharge and, and enhance this market? Well, and it has to do with productivity, right, Brent? Like, yeah, I think most of us view LCAP as a source of productivity and Gen AI is another. And yeah, so agreed. Yeah, indeed. They they target a similar problem, but they, we also get in a lot of uh, noise from the provocative titles and statements like uh, DevOps is dead and platform engineering is new DevOps and now low code is dead and um, generative AI will do all the work. They are generally not real changes or transformations because uh, generative AI is helping to produce digital assets in productive way indeed, but those digital assets are still digital assets like code, like images, like uh, workflow definitions, like data schemas in the database. And the assets have to be deployed somewhere. The assets need to be controlled by some platform and low-code platforms already build this runtime, this uh, composition target for all the assets that generative AI can produce. So in this case, low-code accelerate generative AI use and generative AI accelerates use of low-code platforms. Yeah. And when it comes to generative design AI in particular, I have to say that what I see in low-code application platforms is a different model to produce the end result, the product itself. You know, within the LCAP market, it is more process flow oriented, you know, and it's more about the business process that that you uh, assemble in order to generate the final application. But on the screen design side for UX designers, what's emerging is is a kind of prompt engineering, right, where you're you're essentially selecting from a few user interface controls and entering in a prompt to generate a set of screen designs and user flows. So it's kind of fundamentally different, you know, in terms of the user experience of generative design AI for screen designs in a more traditional sense and generative design AI for, you know, a low code application. So, um, there's there's a little bit of a divergence there, a different approach, you know, in terms of uh, generating experiences ultimately. Indeed, it's a different set of tools and different type of asset. Um, Local platforms spend a lot of uh, time investing in compelling user experience designs and Obviously, whatever generative AI for design can generate, it has to be supported by local platform tool. And if it's not, then it'll be difficult, just like you say. Well, and I also think that sometimes the, the platform part of LCAP, we take it for granted a little bit because platform engineering being top of mind for almost every organization today, and LCAP is a way to buy a platform. It's giving you a design system. It's, it's giving you integrations that are ready to use. And Gen AI is none of that, right? You know, as a developer myself, where my intrigue or confidence or uh, just interest comes from in the LCAP is the fact that I get a platform and so many things are just taken care of for me and I get to build something that's cool without so much concern. I mean, I still remember the first time I started using tools like Firebase even and thinking, you're telling me I don't have to write yet another authentication, authorization layer. That's the first thing I've done my whole career for every application. And it's really a pain. It's difficult stuff to, to really figure out. And 
Gen AI, I think, will complement LCAPs more than competing with them in any way, shape, or form. And that does bring me to another, I guess, question, because I think there is a conception out there, Olex, that most low-code application platforms in production are used to build relatively simple stuff. This is a byproduct of the other misconception that it's primarily a tool for citizen developers, right? Because a citizen developer, you know, they're coming from Excel, they're moving to a new tool where they can do more fancy stuff. But by and large, those use cases, let's let's be honest, are pretty simple. They're pretty basic. They're kind of commoditized. Is it true that, you know, LCAPs are only used for those simple use cases? Part of it is true that um, citizen developer use cases have certain limits in the complexity and not only complexity, it's the scope that the citizen developers can cover is usually within the smaller group of people within the specific use cases, specific tasks that they would like to automate. But it drops the shadow on uh, the use of low-code application platforms that, in fact, are used more by professional developers to create enterprise-scale applications. And this is um, also, I'd say somewhere there's a provocative statement that uh, citizen developers will take over the world and start developing in all the complex applications that used to be developed by Java and .NET and Python developers. Yeah, so that, that that's not going to happen because they have other things to look after. As simple as that. If they switch into up, enterprise application development and start doing so, they will no longer be citizen developers. They will become application developers and they will face all the difficulties and all the scalability and deployment and quality issues that um, software engineers are facing on a daily basis. So uh, it's not true that uh, low-code platforms are used by uh, mostly by citizen developers. However, it's true that citizen developers' use cases are limited. So, Olex, I'd love to know, what are a few examples of the simple stuff, simple, you know, applications that are produced from a low-code application platform? And then, and then in contrast to that, what are uh, just a couple of examples of more complex things that you've seen produced out of, out of an LCAP? Or just innovative, right? Yeah, or innovative, exactly. You know, what are what are a couple of examples you've run into, whether it's in your inquiries or or while doing the research for the MQ? We have a great case study with Heathrow Airport in London that showed uh, examples of uh, applications they developed with citizen developers, and they also advertise and describe their organization structures and roles and knowledge that they need to acquire to do that. And examples are there for, um, say, return to office after COVID. And there was a reporting on staff numbers and different uh, transitions and kind of a dashboard for HR. So these are the examples that citizen developers were building. Often it is reporting, data crunching, um, filtering and pivoting kind of tasks that usually be also associated with the Power BI. Rare occasions, there would be some procurement extension cases where somebody wants to request some um, equipment or some change related to their workplace and it will be connected to the core system that applica- uh, that the organization is running. Um, so th- the, this would be the uh, citizen developer cases. And on the larger scale, on end-to-end um, 
enterprise level, there are cases where workflow engines uh, embedded with uh, platforms like ServiceNow become the central workflow for automating all back office uh, processes. So the organization uh, running business on the workflow that is exposed by the uh, low-code platform. And of course, it brings the, uh, the necessary forms. Um, it brings the complex data integrations. In more rare occasions, we see the front-end applications developed uh, with low-code platforms exposed to public internet, exposed to the company users. Classic example of that would be a self-service capabilities that augment existing uh, busy website for, say, a bank or insurance company or development of mobile app uh, that would quickly deliver uh, this user experience bank in the pocket for the bank users clients. Yeah. I got to say, you when you mentioned Heathrow, uh, for a second, I thought you were going to say, you know, they use low code for some air traffic control application. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. But here's the thing, though. So what are the big business critical things? Will we see something like that someday? It's business critical application that even involves safety or, or something along those lines being generated by, by low code? Is, is, will we see that kind of future maybe? I think if you look at the current um, airflow control code and the way systems are implemented, I haven't seen one, but I would assume that they are quite legacy implementation. And there is a lot of code that aging code and unnecessary and over-engineered or uh, just simply not functional enough for the business it tries to automate. So I'd say using low-code or even generative AI together with low-code will increase the safety rather than uh, decrease and create additional risks. Using legacy systems with legacy tooling is a real risk for safety. It's a good illustration, I think, too, of how many different things low-code can be used for. I mean, this is a massive category that we're talking about. And and when I said earlier I, I was using low-code tools myself, they're open-source things. They're very domain-specific low-code tools, right? They're not this breed of full-stack, you know, UI all the way down to data and, and everything in between kind of kind of solutions. Um, I personally think that low-code has a very bright future in some of those areas. Um, you know, you think about the the benefits of viewing a visual process flow for something like air traffic control brand versus, you know, versus um, every little pixel that has to be rendered in a animated UI, maybe not a great use case for low code, right? And I do think there's benefits to different tiers of applications. And it's part of the reason I think low code platforms have so many integrations available. They're not trying to do everything, right? They're, they're trying to pull together things for, I think, those most common use cases. But it was a good, good example, Heathrow. <laughs> no doubt. And we've talked to, for a little bit here about the users of low-code application platforms. And we talked about citizen developers, and that's certainly the case here. And I think is, is really the headline of what most people think about when they hear low code. But the fact of the matter is a lot of professional developers use these platforms. And you know, we'd love to hear a little bit about that, Olux. Like, what are some of the situations in which professional developers are engaging with these platforms? And why are they 
opting to use them? Is it is it purely productivity? Is it quality? Is it something else? It's all of the above. Uh, you would imagine that main focus organizations have is in the time to market and uh, productivity of developers. Also, we have to count their happiness, their engagement levels, um, and uh, their experience. So this is where uh, low-code platform is handy to address that, but organizations need to embrace this way of working. As we started our conversation saying that not everyone is ready yet. People are trying, people are trying to get used to it. Um, in professional space, though, there are some examples of low-code platforms that used historically for application developer work automation like retool or a service now would be another example of a platform that was used for IT service management and because of the familiarity uh, they uh, were managing to pivot their business case and started working on the low code application development for line of business and that becomes a native tool for developers. They don't need to uh, learn too much. They don't need to introduce some um, additional skills centers or centers of excellence. They just extend the platform that they already know. And more and more of these cases uh, start to appear. Olex, as far as the Magic Quadrant is concerned, um, what's top of mind for you right now going into the next year, uh, you know, as you observe the innovation that's happening in this market. Is there is there something that stands out for you that uh, you're particularly excited about? Yeah, there are two major topics that occupy everyone's mind who, of, of the community who works with low-code platforms, vendors, and clients. And one is fun, is of course, uh, generative AI impacts and what generative AI can do for low-code platforms in the future. Um, and there is no low-code platform vendors who didn't try and didn't introduce something in that space. And I say that's exciting. That is something that extends our capabilities beyond what we ever tried, ever, ever managed to achieve. Another is on top of the agenda, but it's not as fun. It's about governance. It's about um, the control that we have over this low-code platform. As back to our example of the air traffic control. So when we have mission-critical system, yes, the codes and lines of code and megabytes of code in the folders is hard to manage, but that's the devil we know. That's we have tools, we have processes, we have change management processes and uh, practices that established over decades in order to keep it safe and successful. And do we have the same for low-code platforms? Do we have the same or better uh, processes and governance uh, de defined uh, for both citizen developers and professional developers who embrace low-code platforms? So as I say, it's not as entertaining as generative AI, but it is probably more important for the future of low-code platforms. Yeah, let me think. Governance or Gen AI, which which of those would I rather be in charge of? If you're a CIO, you are in governance. <laughs> well, that's why I'm not a CIO, I guess. Um, you're kind of leading into some of the challenges uh, of adoption to when you talk about governance. What would you say is the number one challenge to adopting a low-code platform? The number one challenge, uh, I'd say by far, in terms of number of discussions we have and uh, even the damage done to low-code uh, application platform adoption 
is that uh, development teams or entire organizations jumping into it without proper uh, preparation work, without um, focusing on education, focusing on center of excellence, center of knowledge, enablement team, we call it now research. So these things need to happen. And we kind of getting excited about productivity improvement and we expect that low-code platform will look after itself when we start using it. It does to some extent, but when the complexity of our requirements increase, and uh, in especially in larger organizations, we hit the brick wall very fast with low-code platform. And we, we also hit, hit it faster and with, with more power because uh, it, it does things faster and with more power. So, And it's more frustrating because of that. When you develop traditional code, you still have a chance to turn, refactor it, re-architect it. With low-code platform, you have short period of time to deliver something. It doesn't deliver on promise and it immediately uh, causing the doubt and frustration uh, raises in business about using these low-code platforms and also IT loses trust in, in using low-code platforms. So the biggest advice and message I'd like to uh, deliver here is that uh, it, it will not look after itself. It will need to be um, studied. It needs to be prepared. It needs to be enabled for the organization to be successful. Uh, like with everything else, but this this time, even generative AI need to be managed properly. We start talking about these topics as well. Not only local platform need to be managed properly and prepared. Yeah. What's interesting to me about what you're saying, though, is that I mean, many of these platforms market themselves as being the thing that you can learn in five minutes, right? It's easy to pick up a tool. It's easy to contribute and build solutions. And yet that exact kind of marketing leads to this, this challenge around taking the time to learn it, to govern it, to set up the proper guidelines, because you're not just adopting a new little framework, right? This isn't the new JavaScript framework of the day. This is a massive platform that will potentially change your IT completely, right? Your architecture, yeah, indeed. That's what people should be prepared for. Even when they adopt low-code platform for a very niche use case, um, I usually recommend looking at it as the strategic uh, component in their application portfolio. It will not stay in the corner where you put it. It will try to escape that corner and take over the entire application landscape. That's how they are. So how easy is it to, to switch from one platform to another? So if I adopt Mendex, for instance, you know, and, and two years in, I want to switch to, to Appian. Is it easy to make that switch? Or are these, is there compatibility between these products? Or is that a situation where you, you know, once you adopt one of these platforms, you're kind of stuck with it in, unless you want to go through a, a difficult kind of replatforming or, or migration effort? That would be uh, one of the major concerns that uh, our client also expressed uh, when they start thinking of the local platform as their core systems is the lock in for the vendor uh, implementation and at the moment we don't have good examples of tra transitioning between the local platforms and there there are some discussions uh, some vendors have an open source uh, local local platform start to appear that hopefully will deliver that open standard where you can move metadata between these local platforms, but current leading commercial offerings do not allow that. So if you decided to work with Mendix or ServiceNow, you better stick with them for 
as long as you can. Um, and th this this lock-in exists with um, with other platform implementation too. And we have transitions between mainframe and Java and .NET implementation. They are painful. You need to redevelop everything, moving between clouds if you de deployed your solutions with a cloud-specific implementation. Also painful. So lock-in is the sign of a time, but low-code platforms have a, a full-stack lock-in. So that's a bigger concern, of course. Well, guys, I think we're at the end of our time. Thanks for a great discussion. Yeah, that was a lot of fun, Olex. Thank you. Thank you again, Olex. Thanks again for having me here. Uh, it was a great opportunity to talk about low-code platforms, and uh, I'm looking forward for more great podcasts. And congratulations on the number one MQ, Olex. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, super impressive. Super impressive. Thanks again for your time and the stories and, and all your great input. We'll see you next time. Please subscribe and share the episode with your colleagues. Thank you for listening. Gartner Podcasts are a production of Gartner, the world's leading research and advisory company equipping executives across the enterprise with indispensable insight, advice, and tools to achieve their mission-critical priorities. You can learn more at Gartner.com. All content in Gartner Podcasts is owned by Gartner and cannot be repurposed or reproduced without Gartner's consent. Gartner is an impartial, independent analyst of business and technology. This content should not be construed as a Gartner endorsement of any enterprise's product or services. All content provided by other speakers is expressly the views of those speakers and their organizations. 